Welcome everyone to Lazypedia. I am Coley Angel. And I am Bradley. Today we are going to be talking about history, specifically the history of North Carolina, and specifically the history of North Carolina's voting and how that has affected politics in general in North Carolina. At least before the Civil War and during the Civil War, yeah. Okay, so before the Civil War and during the Civil War, uh, we're going to talk about voting in North Carolina. And we have some really great data, courtesy of Bradley's thesis. So we won't just have casual rememberings. We'll have some hard numbers that you can take with you and use in party conversation. Yeah, you'll be the uh, talk of the town with uh, all of this random election data. It's going to be great. <laughs> All right. So take us in. Let's, let's set the stage. Uh, if you can, can you give us just a little bit of information about sort of what life was like at the, at the time of, of, I guess, wherever we're going to be jumping into uh, in North Carolina? Yeah, so it's actually better if we start really early, uh, because it's important to understand how North Carolina was settled. Uh, the coast, obviously, North Carolina features the Outer Banks, which is just uh, ever-changing um, sandbanks and little barrier islands, and it's considered a ship graveyard, basically. It also made it very easy for pirates to hang out and hide, um, such as The Legend of Blackbeard, which is a popular story um, in North Carolina. But the coastal areas were settled first in North Carolina. North Carolina doesn't really have any navigable rivers that flow east to west from the mountains to the coast. Instead, most of uh, North Carolina's rivers actually flow down into South Carolina. Um, and so it, it didn't have a good way of travel in North Carolina. So for a long time, it was simply the coast is where everyone hung out. That's where, if you could call what North Carolina had as an economy, that's where the economic um, activity was taking place, which left the interior of the colony at the time. We're talking uh, early 1600s into the early 1700s, essentially unexplored. Interesting. So which were the first areas on the Outer Banks that were settled? Are there, are there some of the first cities that were out there? Yeah, so the first regions are actually going to be up in um, northeast North Carolina, up towards uh, Pasquotank County. Um, um, I'm completely blanking, but there's three counties right up there in the north northeast of North Carolina. And those are where your first colonies, um, your first colonial settlements pop up in the state um, or what was then the colony. So you had uh, New Bern um, as um, one of the early cities. Bath was another one. Um, and then Wilmington, people think as like, you know, this this early port city, but it really wasn't. Uh, the, the river down there um, at Wilmington, it was not deep enough for a harbor. Um, and so Wilmington really doesn't rise to prominence until the Civil War. So North Carolina relied on imports from Virginia and South Carolina, um, which again, made it very difficult to develop the states. But yeah, it, would, it was those uh, north, northeastern uh, corner of North Carolina that was settled first. Okay. And how many people about were living in this country? I guess, 
how many people were living in this particular colony compared to the other colonies? Was it was it large? Was it small? It was very unde- undeveloped. It was it was very rural, very undeveloped. South Carolina, you had a almost aristocratic uh, class of people living around the Charleston region and up and down the coast. South Carolina was just easier to navigate. Uh, Virginia, kind of a similar story, a little bit different story up there, but in terms of development of uh, the Chesapeake Bay area definitely was developed early. Um, but because of that, people just, when they call on, when, when they came over the Atlantic to the British colonies, they didn't go to North Carolina. They just were like, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm not going all the way up. There. There's nothing up there. I'll just stay here in South Carolina or I'll just stay here in Virginia. There, there was very little reason to go to North Carolina. Um, until land started running out. Um, and so this kind of takes us a bit to um, the exploration of Western North Carolina. Uh, there was an English fella by the name of John Lawson, um, who in December of 1700 left Charleston, South Carolina, and traveled north into the Piedmont of North Carolina, the Piedmont being counties like Mecklenburg, Iredell, Union, uh, the, cent- the center part of North Carolina. And then he curves towards the east um, and slowly makes his way northeast and basically ends up at the coast of North Carolina. And along the way, he writes, um, he just basically records everything he's seeing. He's basically leaving a diary of his explorations. And then he publishes that. Um, I think it's called A Journey Through Carolina um, or Journey to New Carolina. But you can read it for free online. It's really fascinating stuff because you he records the different wildlife he sees, plant life, as well as um, and he also is recording his interactions with the native tribes in the region. Fascinating. I, I'm curious, and I hate to like pinpoint on just this one fact that because you mentioned a lot of really interesting things. How did the Piedmont area get its name? No idea. Okay, on to the next. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a that's a question for uh, someone who studies lexicology, not me. Oh, okay. I, I apologize. I had no idea. Yeah, don't don't step on a lexicologist's toes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, this region was not settled at all, um, and so it it wasn't even called the Piedmont at this time. It was actually called the Back Country. It was essentially the frontier of um, the frontier of the thirteen colonies. Really, was um, the Piedmont region of North Carolina. That's kind of what it was considered. So. Okay, so North Carolina has been explored. There have been port cities. Other than that, it's sparsely populated. Not many people living there. Where where do we see North Carolina start to become of interest? Uh, well, it depends. If you ask someone from South Carolina, they'll say never. Um, but <laughs> as far as like the West being populated you start seeing that beginning around the 1730s 40s and 50s um so land essentially was running out up north in the northern colonies um, especially in the pennsylvania region and so you have settlers start moving south because they know there's a bunch of land in the colony of carolina that's not been settled and so they traveled down uh from the northern colonies pennsylvania delaware maryland those regions 
on something called the Great Wagon Road or the Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia Great Wagon Road, I think is the other name for it. Is that um, like the Oregon Trail? Yeah, except a lot shorter. Um, and I actually don't know how many rivers they would have to ford, but presumably not nearly as big. I guess, um, but so you, you get, you get different groups of people, uh, moving into North Carolina at this time. Um, and you start seeing recognizable towns popping up in Western North Carolina, Western for that time, uh, Piedmont today. So you get towns like Salem, uh, which eventually, uh, merged with Winston, became Winston-Salem, and then the original settlement became known as Old Salem. Um, Salisbury was probably the biggest western city at this time um and charlotte um form along this road by the mid 1700s so about by 1750 1760 you start getting um wealthier people from the north moving into this region of north carolina okay but people from the north coming here to the south had run out of land or we're looking to expand, or or maybe the the North didn't have the opportunities they wanted, so they they moved south. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Um, but when they get here, the political system in the state is very heavily tilted towards the east, in the eastern part of North Carolina, because that's where for you know fifty, sixty years now, that's where people have lived. They haven't really lived in the West. Um. This leads to a whole a whole kerfuffle um, in the 1750s and 60s called the Regulator Rebellion, which we I think we may have touched on in an earlier episode. Um, basically, uh, wealthy Easterners were quickly buying up all the land in the West um, and forcing people to rent that land, and but they would not issue paper money to help people pay for it they they would just repossess the land and then go rent it to someone else so they were making a killing basically and westerners resented this and there was this there was this big rebellion um and it ended i believe in early 1760s um maybe a little bit later than that in alamance county north carolina so um a little bit closer to the virginia border in between charlotte and raleigh um, big showdown lot, lots of guns pe- people it was mostly fighting. it was mostly the westerners running away when uh, governor tryon showed up with the militia of easterners um so yeah it wasn't much of a battle but the battle of alamance there's now a historic battlefield up there um so that that's an early sign that the west and the east of north carolina are going to have a little bit of trouble moving forward Ooh, a little bit of foreshadowing i like it yeah um so the American Revolution comes around, and you know that's that's a whole thing. Um, and North Carolina decides, okay, well, we're not part of England anymore. We're not a colony. We need a constitution. So a bunch of bigwigs, essentially out east, come up with the constitution and say, okay, this is it. This is the constitution. Um, and so they design a government system that is three branches of government: so executive, legislative, and judicial. Nothing crazy going on there. Yeah, yeah, nothing nothing weird going on just yet. Um, But the legislative branch, known as the General Assembly, is divided up into two different houses. So, you know, bicameral, just like we have here um, in the United States today. 
The House of Commons would be the lower house, the representatives, and the Senate, the upper house. Uh, the General Assembly was incredibly powerful in North Carolina. Um, they appointed almost every single office in the state, including the governor. The governor was then appointed a council of state, which North Carolina still maintains to this day. Okay, so wait. The governor is not elected by general election. He's elected by the representatives in mm -hmm. the General Assembly. Correct. Uh, okay. Representatives and senators. Um, he would serve for a single year. Um, and additionally, the General Assembly also appointed most of the judges in the state. So you, you didn't have a lot of offices to vote for, even locally. The General Assembly would just appoint your officers. Um so there's a couple problems with this. One, this constitution was never actually put up to a popular vote and ratified. There was it was just implemented, really. There there was no vote and ratification that took place for this constitution. Secondly, if you remember earlier, the east is more developed than the west, but the population of the west is starting starting to increase. It's slowly increasing. What the east does Eastern um, legislature legislators in the General Assembly, they start splitting up their counties. And then the 1776 Constitution gives each county a single senator and two representatives. So it's not based on population at all. So what the oh. East starts doing is dividing their counties up into tiny little counties to make sure that they get more representation in the General Assembly. On top of that, six of the largest towns in the state, um, towns Salisbury being one of them, Hillsboro, uh, New Bern, Bath, and Fayetteville was added to it. And there's one more that slips my mind. Um, for the most part, by and large, eastern-oriented counties, um, or eastern-oriented cities, I mean, are given special representatives in the General Assembly. They they all get to elect a extra representative representative so you see there's a bit of a uh, imbalance going on here yeah they're stacking the stacking the bench exactly the deck the deck is being stacked against the west here ah, um, that's the idiom yeah yeah <laughs> so i guess to put some dirt in the wound uh or is it salt in the wound did i screw up an idiom here oh no well, it's not a Maybe podcast on idioms. Thing. Yeah. yeah, it's also Lazypedia. So if you want some some okay facts delivered in a haphazard manner, you're in the right place. If you want something on point where we, everything we say is correct and we say it correct the first time, get out. Go to school, basically. And you wouldn't be <laughs> listening to this podcast. You know, pay, pay more attention in high school history and you won't need us. Um, so... It's a it's a very imbalanced system, and now to make things worse, it's also a very undemocratic system. As we've already gone over, the General Assembly essentially points appoints most of the statewide offices as well as local uh, judicial districts and whatnot. But you can still vote for senators and uh, representatives. Um, how much? How much? Um, do you know how big the land that you own is? How many acres it is? How much I own? Yeah, how the the lot your house sits on. How many acres is it? Do you know off the top of your head? It is point three 
five, I think. Mm. I've got bad news for you. You cannot actually vote for senators. So um, you can only vote oh, for the House of Common Representatives. Um, they were land owning requirements. So you had to, to own. Yes, you had to own 50 acres of land to vote for senators. I'm upset about this. Well, get more land, kid. Um, additionally, <laughs> Wait, if you even wanted what, to run what for if office. I just bought a bunch of cheap land? It's still land. You, you could vote then. The, the whole idea is that the early North Carolina system was meant to represent property, really, more than it was people. There was this okay. big there was this big thing. So they were basically like, we're going to let everyone vote for a House of Commons, you know, representatives. They're going to represent the people. But senators are going to actually represent property. And this kind of becomes uh, a huge issue by the 1858. So th- th- this is like the House of Lords in in london or england in general this this is like it very much is one yeah yeah i don't like that at all it um the south was very enamored with european aristocracy um so but let's say you're you're like okay well i have 50 acres of land i think it is in my interest in the interest of my county to run for office well i've got bad news buddy you have to own 100 acres of land to even serve in the House of Commons, which would be the lower house. You would have to own 300 acres of land to even serve as a senator. What? That, like, I, I, that, that's so blatant, though. You know, I feel like there's there's a lot of limitations today. Like, if I wanted to run for office, I would have to, like, do some fundraising and a lot of things I don't know how to do. And But at the same time, it, it's sort of obscure. This is just like, no, you can't play. You you don't get to you don't get to participate. You know, like here's here's everybody who gets to play, and and you're not one of them. Well, uh, and and that's that kind of gets down to the whole notion of the American political system to begin with. When people describe it as this super democratic system, it did not at all start out that way. Yeah, I don't all. like this. Um. Uh. State legislatures actually appointed senators. Uh, there was no popular vote for senators. And so to a certain extent, a lot of the early presidential elections weren't really popular vote elections either. I mean, even today, we we still have that little quirk of the Electoral College where you can lose the popular vote but still win an election, which we've seen Republicans take advantage of quite a few times now. Um, but that, that all goes back to this these early election rules where the people who wrote the constitution um who were typically wealthy landowners were they didn't want to lose their power so it's you know good to maybe see if we can't stack you know change the rules a little bit in our favor i wonder if there's anybody so in north carolina i was out there was like i own 45 acres of land they're like you have to own 50 acres to be able to vote he's like can we make it 45 and they're like no (laughs) <laughs> no, no. Well, typically, if you had the money to buy 45 acres of land, you had the money to buy five more acres cheap stake. So, but because the West is under undeveloped, um, you have large counties, very sparse populations. Um, the East has all the power. It's just that's just the way it goes. But by the 1830s, so we're going to jump ahead now from 1776 to about the 1830s, the population of the West had finally surpassed that of the East. 
Uh, so the western part of the state, including the mountains at this point, the population is now larger than it is in the east. But because of the 1776 Constitution, the east controls the entire political system still. Yeah, in a very upsetting way. Not not even in like a, a hard to understand, I'm just going to go with it kind of way. Just like a very blatant... I'm wealthy and powerful, and, and you can't vote, and you can't run for office. And, yeah, I th- th- this is upsetting to me because I definitely was under the notion that America just started off being like, hey, everybody should be able to vote. Hey, everybody, every person, you know, at the t- okay, and at the time, I, I totally thought they just discounted people based on race because they were really bad about that at that time. Mm-hmm. But they not just discounted people based on race. They discounted people based on income. They discounted people based on how much land they had, which I guess was the income at the time. So part of part of the theory there was if you owned a stake in the country, so to speak, you owned land, you had very strong interests in its economic well-being, you were more likely to make decisions that were for the betterment of the country as a whole, not for selfish purposes. That was a lot of the early thought here, that people who didn't have all of these assets would make decisions that were very short-term and very self-centered, as opposed to making decisions that would benefit the entire nation as a whole. So that that's where some of this ideology comes from. Yeah, when you line it up like that, I, I, I could see a little bit of logic. I, I would just be very upset. If I was not included, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, but you'd probably also be upset because, you know, you were living in a little tiny wood house with clay-lined walls that got incredibly cold in the middle of winter. And by the way, now you have smallpox and gangrene. Goodbye. Uh, You don't even get a chance to vote. So it happens. Um, But you you would not be alone. Uh, People in the West were just incensed by this. This... By the 1830s, it was it was quickly becoming an untenable position for the East to maintain this power structure in the state. Um, in fact, it was so bad that some Western counties by 1835 were beginning to bring up the idea of seceding from North Carolina and forming their own state or demanding that the local sheriffs call an election for a constitutional convention bypassing the legislative branch of North Carolina. So it's getting out of hand for the East. Uh, The West is starting to demand increased state spending on infrastructure, chiefly railroads. Uh, There was just no infrastructure in the western part of the state. North Carolina had the nickname of the Rip Van Winkle state, just drunk on Jeffersonian ideology, essentially. Okay, one, who is Rip Van Winkle? He was a drunk dude, and he woke up, and he was like, oh, yeah. Okay, I think I know that story. He... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fell asleep somewhere in the woods because he didn't like his wife. And then he woke up years later, right? Like a bunch of time had passed and he was just cool with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wh- wait. North Carolina was kind of considered that. Because we were we were drunk and not progressing appropriately. Exactly. This, the state just was not moving forward at all. It was just considered this backward squalor. It was just an embarrassment oh, to the South, no. basically. And that's saying something, because the South can be pretty embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I try very hard as somebody who was born in this state to find little things that we've done 
right and be like, look, look at what my state has done correct. And oftentimes I can't find those things or I find those things. And then I find out a few years later they were undone, you know, with like great force, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 The, um, the reconstruction era in North Carolina is a good example of that. Consider kind of the hope of the South, a very progressive state moving forward, uh, trying to fix up race relations and then just completely undone oh, shortly after. Gosh. Um, especially by 1898 with the, uh, Wilmington, uh, insurrection, which we could do a whole episode on. Later which we if should. And, and if we say, and we promise it, we should do it. No, <laughs> I'm just bringing up the fact we, we spoke earlier about, we said in our first episode, this is part one of three. And then it was just part one of one. We'll get we'll get the part two and three. It's Lazypedia, okay. though. We don't have to do it right away. We could do it when we really we're, feel. We're really like leaning it. on that, but I like it. Also, question: Had yeah the east the western part of North Carolina seceded from the rest of North Carolina? Do you think they would have called it Western North Carolina or just Western Carolina? Um, I'm trying to remember what some of the names were because there were actually little names given to the western part of the state. Oh, that's but cool. For the life of me, I cannot remember any of them. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I don't have an answer to that. Oh, I actually have an answer to a question that I posed earlier, and we'll likely edit oh, yeah? this to make it sound like I just had it uh, <laughs> at the start. Um, Piedmont comes from the Latin word Piedmonte. Or something like that, but it's Latin or Italian or something. Um, and the meaning of the word is foothill. Ah, well. Now you know. There you go. You learn something new every day. Well, then the Piedmonte of North Carolina was very pissed off at the arrangement of the political system. Um, by the 1830s so they're not to get us back on track but i'm going to do that to us anyway um yeah so the west is demanding an increase in state spending on railroads um, as well as more equal representation in the general assembly quite understandable as well as expanded elections so let us vote for other offices we should be able to vote for our local judges we don't want your party hack in power um and the cries for a convention are getting louder and louder, and things are getting more and more reform-minded. So Easterners finally agree to a convention in an effort to kind of control the West. So they designed the entire convention to be controlled by the East. So they're going to kind of throw the West a few bones here. So to elect delegates, they decide on the federal count, the federal count being the white population uh, the white male population, I should say, plus three-fifths of the enslaved population of North Carolina. Well, at this point in time, the East had all the enslaved populations, so they were able to counter counteract the higher population of the West through this. And as a result, they could control the convention. So 
the convention takes place, um, I think, in late 1834, early 1835. And one of the first things they do, they reform the General Assembly. So they reform the House of Commons to be rep- to be kind of appropriated by the um, federal counts. So here is another kind of attempt of the East to maintain some form of their power. So the federal count, again, is white population plus enslaved population. So this shifts some representatives over to the East. Then for the Senate, they decide that the Senate is actually just going to represent the tax value of property. So they create these different districts, tax districts in North Carolina. And depending on how valuable the districts are, will dictate how many senators this district can Man, elect. that is some and so blatant they don't... cronyism. <laughs> yeah, so the Senate no longer represents the people at all. There, There's no longer any you know, dancing around it. The Senate represents property interests. The landholding requirements still remain to vote and to run for office, though. Then, in a, a really, really good kick in the butt for the West, uh, they enact special tax privileges for people who hold slaves. Essentially, if you were a slave owner, you would not really have to pay many taxes at all on that what was then considered property. So they essentially gave themselves a massive tax tax exemption on a massive part of property. Everything they did at this convention is just the worst. Well, there's a few things that they do here. Um, The 1835 Constitution did make the governor more powerful, and also he no longer was appointed by the general assembly he instead would be elected in a general popular uh general vote across the state okay that 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 so, is kind of an okay thing but at the same time the rest of the things they do are just so catered to wealthy people and just like a tax exemption on slavery i feel like you you like everything else is just sort of like oh my gosh that's that convention where they had a a tax exemption on slavery. It's like one of the worst things you could probably do and be bureaucratic at the same time. Um, Yeah. What I said earlier, basically it was just, they were throwing a bone to the West. Uh, The balance of power was still tilted towards the East. So the West did gain more power and this did kind of allow them to start dictating how much money was flowing to the West in terms of like infrastructure improvements and stuff. But what's also very important is because Governors rep- was one man because it had to be a man at this point in time, 1835, because it was one person, one man who had to win an election across the entire state. Suddenly, you have one person espousing your party ideology across the entire state, as opposed to these local little elections where a lot of the time it was who you knew. Um, this guy's a Whig. I'm a Whig. I'm voting for this guy. Well, now, or, or, you know, he's, he's my neighbor. I'm going to vote for my neighbor, obviously. But now you have a man who you, who you don't really know. And he has to make himself known to people across the state and campaign to them and appeal for their votes because the governor was popularly elected and there was no land holding requirement to vote for a governor. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's another thing that is decent 
kind of a bad mm-hmm. place to start. So it, it's sort of sad that like coming to that point, you're like thumbs up, but decent. To have progress, you have to have a starting point. And the starting point's always going to look worse <laughs> by comparison. Uh, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. You're you're being very fair to these these people who are giving tax exemptions to slaveholders. The, yeah, I mean, they all died. So <laughs> they who got really it. Won in the end. <laughs> they got it. They bit the dust. Now show them. Um, so because the governor is having to do this, or the can the candidates for governors are having to do this, they're interacting with the population across the state more. And in turn, this is increasing the political education of voters. They're now interacting more with politics because now the parties, so the two principal parties in North Carolina would be the Whigs and the Democrats at this point in time. The two parties are now putting their ideology on one person as opposed to having 50 or 100 different candidates sprawled out across the state, each one running differently without much coordination going on. The governors, the candidates for governors have to coordinate with the party to basically share their platform with people. And because of that, it's easier now for people to politically engage with the system. So that's a very important aspect of what's to come. Okay. So elections are changing. Political power has shifted more towards the middle, but still in the east. And finally, people are able to elect somebody in a popular vote, even if they don't have land. So everybody's getting catered to at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it It's a start. It's kind of considered a compromise between east and okay. west. So we're going to fast forward now. Uh, so buckle up to 1848 Whoa. because this is where the trouble starts. So by 1848, the Democrats had not won a single election for governor in North Carolina. They were seen as this kind of aristocratic Eastern oh, yeah. party. Can I, can I they ask you doing, what they, the party, both parties, what just sort of like a synops uh-huh. of what they're about at this time? So at this point in time, the Democrats are kind of more of the small government party. Um, the 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 Whigs are kind of more of a tariff protectionist, um, economically focused party. Um, so they're they're more considered for I guess bigger government. Um, though the state parties are a little bit different, though they typically espouse the same ideology as the national counterparts. Um, but yeah, the Democrats were very much of more for a decentralized government, where the Whigs were more for a centralized government. So you can look at Andrew Jackson's war on the bank, essentially, as an example of what the Democrats wanted. Um, I'd give you examples of what the Whigs would do if they had power, but every single Whig president died in office, if memory serves, um, hmm. except for maybe, well, I don't even think Quincy Adam or Quincy. Adams was a Whig. I can't remember, but um, that sounds a little conspiratorial. If they yeah, all so, died in office. Yeah, Zachary Taylor ate some bad cherries. William Henry Harrison gave a really long speech in the cold rain and got pneumonia. Um, I think there was one other Whig. Maybe I'm, for, maybe 
I'm projecting, wishing that there was another wig. But yeah, Zachary Taylor ate bad cherries and that, died. It, that's um, what they want you to think. They want you to think he ate bad cherries and died. In reality, he had some other fruit as well and then and then died. Zachary Taylor was the one who threatened to hang his son-in-law, who was actually Jefferson Davis. <laughs> Wait, so <laughs> Zachary Taylor said he's going to hang his son-in-law, who is Jefferson Davis? Yeah. And then he dies everyone under mysterious circumstances? After eating cherries. So I'm not, you know, I don't think Jefferson Davis was a cherry farmer, but I'm sure he had access to cherries. Oh, man. Yeah, Jefferson Davis is just no good as well. Yeah, plus he kind of did that whole, I'm the president of the Confederate no, States No, yeah, that, that's principally but, what I was referring to. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I knew that. Um, <laughs> good. I'm very Thank proud you. of you. All right, so back to 1848 and enough of Zachary Taylor cherry conspiracy. Um, a gentleman by the name of David Settle Reed decides he's going to run for governor against Charles Manley. Um, and like I was saying, the Whigs had not lost a single election and the Democrats had not won a single election for governor. Um, and in 1848, the Whigs controlled the General Assembly as well. Um, and so David Settle Reed, um, he was the son of a wealthy plantation owner from Rockingham County. Uh, which is a bit north of Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, but he was a self-taught lawyer, and he purchased over 200 acres of land from his father. And then in a, a Rockingham County, north of Greensboro, so it's a little bit more of a western-oriented county. Um, so he owns 200 acres of land. He is now allowed to run for office, and he unseats a Whig representative in 1835. And this election was actually an upset because it was kind of considered a Whig safe seat. And David Settle Reed, a Democrat, wins the seat. Uh, he was definitely a Jacksonian Democrat, though, and a very reliable member for the Democratic caucus in the state. So he's running for governor, and he comes up with this brilliant idea. He, he knows he needs the votes of the West. So he decides... Well, one thing the West doesn't like is the fact that there's this big property requirement to vote for state senators. What if we got rid of that? So he decides to run on a platform called free suffrage, which would grant senatorial voting rights to all white men, regardless of land ownership. So just getting rid of the last land requirement for elections. What a, what a sneaky little marketing title. Free suffrage for all white men. Well, I have to emphasize that point today. They didn't back then because it was just yeah. known that, of course, women aren't going to vote. And actually, on a little side note here, um, so a little quirk in the 1776 our uh, constitution actually made no mention of race, which meant that freed blacks were given the right to vote in North Carolina until 1835. Oh, and then they like go back so just on a, it? Yep, basically. They went back and they were, man, no, we're not going to let this. That's, that's a great example of something. I want to I want to be like, you know what? Good job, state that I was born in. And then, nah. Nah, it was just, it was just straight up an oversight in 1776. Hmm. So, um, but back to 1848, Reed's running on free suffrage. Um, and the Whigs opposed the measure. They're like, why are you going to? 
mess up the balance between east and west here. And so most observers believe that this would just be another overwhelming Whig victory. But Reed actually tapped in to a huge undercurrent of unrest and disappointment towards the political nature of the state. And instead of losing in a landslide election to Charles Manley, who was the Whig uh, governor at the time, the incumbent, Reed only loses by a couple hundred votes. He comes very close to a massive upset in North Carolina. But he did lose. He did lose, (laughs) but he wasn't done. So because he brings this issue to the forefront and he is the first political candidate to do so, the Whigs now have to address this. They're no longer in a position where they can just kind of go with the status quo because Westerners are demanding free suffrage now. So Charles Manley comes out in favor of it. He's like, well, this would be stupid to continue to oppose it. Clearly, people want this. So, yeah, I'm for free suffrage. And then he also adds that he wants to change a few other things, such as changing the census counts from the federal count to the white count. So getting rid of that three-fifths clause, essentially. This would also increase the power of the West. Reed instead decided to stay silent on these sort of issues. So he really doesn't comment much on um, the count issue. So in 1850, we get a rematch between Charles Manley, the Whig candidate who is now in favor of free suffrage, and David Settle Reed, the gentleman who forced this issue into the forefront of North Carolina politics. So now we move on to a third character in the story, probably one of the most fascinating people in North Carolina history, William Woods Holden. Um, Holden is just one of the strangest characters in North Carolina history, I think. So he was the illegitimate son of Priscilla Woods and Thomas Holden, born in Hillsborough, North Carolina, which is just outside of Durham today. Um, He was a self-taught lawyer, too. That was just a thing to do. You grow up, you become a lawyer, but you teach yourself how to do it. Uh, But importantly, he becomes a newspaper editor at this time, too, kind of apprenticed as one for the um, Hillsborough Recorder. The Hillsborough Recorder was a Whig-oriented paper. Um, In a little bit, we're going to get into the role of newspapers, but essentially they were political mouthpieces at this time. Some people argue today that they are still political (laughs) mouthpieces and editorial sections. Yeah, there's an argument there for that, but not getting into that. Back then, it was just known. I mean, they named their papers after the political parties in many cases. It'd be nice to bring back, you know, just kind of so you know who (laughs) who you're going with. Yeah, but I mean, if you have any amount of critical thinking skill, anyway. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get canceled. Um, So Holden gets involved early on in democratic affairs in the state, um, and he eventually purchases the controlling interest in the weekly standard, the North Carolina Weekly Standard or the semi-weekly standard in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he turns it into the premier Democratic mouthpiece of North Carolina. So he now is basically controlling the language coming out of the Democratic Party. He espouses the ideology to the readers. And the Weekly Standard is one of the more widely circulated papers in the state, though not the most circulated paper in the state. The most circulated paper in the state was actually called the Spirit of the Age, which was a temperance paper, so an anti-alcohol paper. Whoa. A little fun fact. 
I, I can't imagine so, like picking up a paper every single week and being like, I wonder what's going to be in here. And it says, don't drink. And and some other things along well, those, like drinking is bad and it's it's not good for you and you shouldn't drink. And then you're like, wow, that, that was great. I can't wait to come back next week and get the same message. Well, I mean, um, the papers would also have um, agricultural news. So, you know, weather, when to plant things, different tips like that. Stories, uh, uh, serial stories were a huge thing. Um, that's where... Um, Who's the guy that wrote Huckleberry Finn? That Mark dude. Mark Twain. Yeah, Mark Twain. That's where a lot of his how a lot of his stories were published early on was in newspapers uh, weekly, basically. So you get a lot of that in a lot of these newspapers at the oh, time. That's pretty too. cool. So yeah, like little little yeah. stories one week after another. Yeah, and even in political oriented papers like the Weekly Standard, you get some of these sometimes, especially on weekend issues. Um, so Holden. Unremarkable lineage, but rises to kind of a semi-kingsmaker within the Democratic Party. And so he throws his full weight behind David Reed and kind of becomes Reed's attack dog for the 1850 election. So Reed continues hitting upon free suffrage constantly. That is what he is running on. Oh, yeah. And also, you know, like, I guess I'll run on like, yeah, we'll give you some uh, we'll give you some railroads i guess you know that sort of thing um but just as kind of an example of what's going on in the west here um the weekly standard starts publishing letters from writers in the west um and one writer writing to holden editor of the weekly standard wrote that in casting our votes for reed we know that we are casting them for the champion of popular rights going on to also write here in the West is where the danger lies. Give us a man whom we know we can trust, and we will rally around him and bear him on the victory. So Holden is publishing these letters for a very specific reason. He wants to show Eastern Democrats that if they want to get power in the state, they have to appeal to the West. And because he's constantly kind of poking a hornet's nest of agitation in the West— Western demands continue to grow. So we start getting other issues popping up, like the Cherokee land relief. Basically, um, after the Trail of Tears, North Carolina sold all of that Cherokee land in the mountains to buyers. Um, the problem is inflation happens, and the prices they sold at were kind of ridiculous. Um, and so they they sold it on credit to a lot of buyers. And what ends up happening is when it comes time to pay the debt— these landowners don't have the money for it because, well, it didn't really rise in value like they thought, and now their currency is also worth less. Hard to feel bad for so, them, kicking people off their land and being well, you know, like, you know what? I don't even like this land. That it's not even not even appreciating. Yeah, it, but it's also a problem economically for the West because now you have a lot of people who are losing the land that they bought that was stolen to begin with. Anyway, um. And so this is an issue that has to be addressed by the government, especially to placate the West. Additionally, schools. Uh, North Carolina actually did have a school system in place at this time, the common school system. It was funded by the Literature Fund, which was in turn funded by railroad profits. Well, if you don't have a lot of infrastructure in the West, you're not getting many railroad profits. Additionally, the way the money was divvied out was based on the federal count, not the white count. So this meant that counties 
that did not have a high population but had a very high enslaved population, such as Edgecombe County, which had like a one to three or one to four ratio of whites versus enslaved, um, were receiving more money than a county like Mecklenburg County, which had more of a one to one ratio. Edgecombe didn't have that many children, but they were getting more money for their schools than Mecklenburg County, which had more children in it. This agitates the West, obviously. Right. And then, of course, voting rights. So. so the Whigs, Charles Manley, kind of the forerunner, uh, their their standard bearer paper, they had two. Um, in the West, it was the Greensboro flag and Patriot. Uh, and then in the East, it was the Raleigh Register. And these are your two principal Whig papers. And what ends up happening to them is indicative of what happens to the Whigs later. So we'll talk about that um, probably in the next episode, because I think it's just a little bit beyond where we're going to end up today. But the Whigs start trying to attach everything they can think of to the free suffrage issue to portray themselves as the greater friends to the West. We care more about the West than Reed. Reed is just a demagogue. He doesn't care about you. He just wants to win. And, well, you know, that might be true. Reed won. (laughs) <laughs> um, and he won. He he won by driving up vote totals in the West. Um, even in counties that he lost, he generally narrowed the gap enough because remember he only lost by a couple hundred votes. He narrows the gap enough in the West and rallies Western Democrats to the polls enough to take control of the governor's mansion. Additionally, they flip enough seats in the General Assembly to take control of it, so they now control the Senate and the House of Commons. So, the Democrats for the first time since 1835, have achieved a trifecta. They control the state government now. So they control the governorship and the the Senate? The Senate and the House okay. of Commons. They control they control uh, both branches of the uh, General Assembly and the governor's mansion. So now they're in power. And, you know, now they got to deliver on their promise. We promise these people free suffrage. Oh man. Well, if you're a Whig in the East, you're really digging in your heels now. You're not you're not budging one bit. If you're a Democrat in the East, you're not happy about it, but you're going to extend your support to the governor because he's the most important political figure in your party, basically. So the question becomes, how do we implement free suffrage? There's two ways to go about this. The 1835 Constitution gave two ways to amend it. One was a legislative process, where basically in two consecutive uh, legislative sessions, so it has to be two different years, basically, back to back, the legislature can approve a constitutional amendment with a three-fifths majority. It's very difficult to do, because not only do they have to pass it in one session, they then have to run for re-election, win, and then pass it again. So they have to they have to vote twice. Mm-hmm. So this is one way to amend the constitution. The second way is the more traditional call a constitutional convention. So the Democrats they want to go the legislative route. They're like, okay, yeah, this is the way we should do it. However, Western representatives, especially Whigs, are demanding a convention. They, they want to not only remake the free suffrage issue, they want to do a few other things, such as fix the taxes and make the federal count make more sense. Mm. They want to get rid of the federal count and switch to the white count to get rid of the counting of slaves. 
Eastern representatives are adamantly opposed to this, and they want legislative enactment or no enactment of free suffrage. I feel like I can't get behind anything like in detail with what they're trying to do, because I feel like all of it is like sort of generally flawed by our, our modern you know, sense of right and wrong. But one thing I do respect is just they actually gave it a go. They said, I'm, I'm going to do this thing if you elect me. And they're trying to do the thing, you know? And I feel like nobody mm -hmm. told them, hey, you got elected. You don't actually have to do the thing. You could just say there's a lot of reasons why it won't happen and blame the other party, you know, like most of the politicians do nowadays. Uh, yeah. Um, so David Reed didn't, you know, he, he didn't just aspire to be governor. He eventually does become a senator in the U.S. Senate uh, appointed by the General Assembly, because back then you did not vote for your U.S. senators. The state uh, legislative branch did. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're right to an extent, but they also had to deliver because they realize if they don't deliver, the Whigs take power and the Whigs might not ever give power back because you you can be damn sure the Whigs are going to enact right. this. And if Western Whigs went out they're going to be changing a lot more than just free suffrage. Okay. Okay. So they're saying that we, we believe in this progress too, but we also believe in it more. And so there's kind of a race to. It, it becomes a fight for who's the bigger champions of the right. West. Okay. I'm not as impressed with their, um, their acting then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the West is clamoring for a convention. So in the East, Democrats are generally united. We're going to do free suffrage, but that's it. In the West, Democrats are like, hey, let's try to get a convention. And then when that fails, they get in line with the East. They're like, okay, that we tried. Let's get free suffrage done. Western Whigs are demanding a convention. Eastern Whigs are demanding Oh my Nothing. Gosh. I need a flowchart. <laughs> they don't want to do anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, well, well, what's happening? What's starting to happen here in 1851 is the Whig Party is splitting geographically in North Carolina. You have your more conservative Eastern Whigs, and you're getting a more reform-minded branch in the West of Whigs, and this is reflected in the way newspaper language starts turning. The Raleigh Register. Uh, the Eastern Whig paper is adamantly opposed to free suffrage through legislative enactment for the most part. And they, they change their tune the closer free suffrage gets to being enacted. But early on, they were just steadfastly opposed to it. However, the Greensboro Flag and Patriot is demanding a convention constantly. And they're, in fact, attacking Eastern Whigs saying you called yourself the friends of the west and look at you now you are trying to keep our power at bay and so the greensboro greensboro flag and patriot is kind of indicative indicating a split in the Whig party here ah that's that's the foreshadowing the we are not referring to before okay mm -hmm. but the democrats are not going to be immune to this we'll see later oh okay something to look forward to yeah so 
throughout the 1851 session in the General Assembly, free suffrage bills are being proposed, written, and killed off constantly because they can't even agree how are we going to implement this? Are we going to do a constitutional convention or are we going to do legislative enactment? What is the correct way to do this? Eastern Whig papers are overjoyed. The Raleigh Register at uh, one point writes, it's it's finished. Free suffrage lays slain among the defeated. And, and like, it, it's just bombastic language. Um, but through procedural motions, uh, the issue keeps coming up. And Western support for free suffrage actually starts to fall off, interestingly enough, in the General Assembly, because they're not getting a convention. And they refuse to vote for free suffrage without a convention. And so it's interesting to see the West is actually kind of going all or nothing at this point now. We want more than just free suffrage. We want a whole convention now. It's like they've, they've tasted the sweet taste of power. And now they're just demanding more of it. Understandable. Okay. Yeah. So they're like, you guys listen to us once. And, and, you know, now it's taking a long time to do this one thing. And now we want also to have more railroads and better schools. And, okay, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so we we want all of it. You guys have to listen to us now. That That's a big part of it, yeah. And so Western representatives are generally starting to oppose free suffrage because they want all of it now. Um, but... Cooler heads prevail in the West, and eventually, um, towards the end of the 1851 session, the General Assembly passes free suffrage. And so, what has to happen next is the General Assembly of 1852 now has to approve it as well. So, David Reed, uh, in governor's speeches, messages to the General Assembly, he's constantly like, guys, pass this. You have to pass this, pass this, pass this, pass this. Please pass this. But don't do anything else. Don't do a constitutional convention, guys. So the Democrats are unified. We're not doing a convention. The Whigs are split. The West is like, we want a convention. And the East is like, we don't want a convention. So it kind of becomes a little bit easier for the Democrats to keep winning. But they fail to actually enact for free suffrage in 1852 the bill fails it doesn't doesn't get through so they have to start the process over again what what happens why what who who is voting against so it, it it's not ever overwhelming defeats it's very close like you get one county that sends someone against it and the whole thing can come undone it was not free suffrage was not winning by huge margins in the general assembly and it wasn't losing by huge margins it would be one or two votes at most it it just seems and i just feel like i'm about to get up on a little soapbox that throughout political history people have figured out ways to make people vote against their interest, especially when it comes to like money, like, hey, there's something that generally benefits the top 10% or top, you know, 5% of the population. We think it's a good thing. Big old thumbs up. And we think you should support it too. And here's the reason why. And then oftentimes people get behind it. And this just sounds like a great example of like, Oh yeah, I shouldn't be able to vote for a senator if I don't have land, you know. But like, who is 
who is <laughs> you know th- throwing their weight around and being like you know what no let let's not let's not be able to vote for this because you know what I would make the wrong decision if I voted I know it's not individual so remember who remember who's being elected is very wealthy people in general and remember who gets the right to vote for senators the house of commons in 1852 actually does pass free suffrage the law fails to advance in the senate not the house of commons uh, okay that that makes more sense you know just like the senators mm-hmm. sort of nose in the air you know like i don't want i don't want an election from one of you stinky commoners i don't want to that, vote that, that's kind of from part of you. it yeah um so it doesn't get the votes in the Senate in 1852, but it does pass the House of Commons. But because it fails, the whole process has to start over. This this kind of makes me so, like a little bit happier with our current system, but also super frustrated that it started this way. Because I've always felt like our current system is just wealthy people who, you know, usually start out as lawyers or starting out, you know, somewhere in public service, but usually they're pretty well-to-do, pretty well-connected, wealthy people who decide to run for office. And so they're not a good representation of, of most people most of the time. And it just makes me a little happy that it's gotten better, but also it's kind of sad that I have to think that way to start you know like why can't we we vote for representatives that are more indicative of sort of the the mean of the population versus somebody who's got 300 acres i am really excited for your soapboxes when we get to the tax issue yeah this is the free suffrage is just kind of the start of what yeah and i'm not even like i understand like this this was a big issue of the time, but I'm not even sure where I stand on it because it it seems like it's. I thought that's where we started. I thought we started with all white people being able to vote, and now you know there's like this wealth element to start, and it's just like oh should should all white people be able to vote for a senator? And I was kind of disappointed that we started there, and it turns out we didn't even start there. yeah so it kind of gets into my whole thing about progress um the the idea of this like these founding fathers who wanted everyone to have the right to vote and everyone to be able to take part it's a myth it's a founding myth It's, it's not accurate at all what they did want was basically everyone to have natural rights that could not be infringed upon but that didn't mean you got to take place take part in the political system it just meant the political system couldn't take advantage of you in a sense um so it's it's kind of a founding myth every country has these founding myths that glorify these very flawed people because people are flawed and are the founding fathers of the united states are no different they have their own problems you know when we look back on them it's okay to idolize and think highly of them but it's not okay to think they were perfect and everything they did was in the interest of everyone and that we should do exactly what they wanted us to do things change um otherwise you know (laughs) 
uh, you wouldn't be able to vote. I wouldn't be able to vote. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah, I'd have to get 49.7 more acres to be able to vote for the House of Commons. And then double that for the... Oh, no, 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 no. That's for the Senate. You you got the vote for the House of oh, Commons. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you get the vote for half, but not all. And the Senate could kill any bill they wanted to. Basically. Yeah, I'm, you I'm gotta so get upset because it, it, it just seems more blatant. But also, maybe that's just my ignorance and like head in the sand of like wealthy people influencing modern politics is probably just as prevalent. And David David Reed agreed with you. He actually stated in 1854 because by 1854, free suffrage still was not enacted. And he's urging the General Assembly, and he's, he says, Every candid mind must admit that 50 acres of land does not endow its owner with knowledge, nor does it impart to him virtue or patriotism when he goes to the ballot box. And then he goes on to basically say that the people who don't have land are in many cases more industrious than the people who do. They are working harder than the people who own all of this land. So David Reed, pretty much, he seems like he agrees with you. Yeah, and I, like for the most part, I I like that. Like, like, yeah, your your ability to vote shouldn't be based on how much money you have, and it just seems incredibly blatant at that time. And and you know, like the political system is for wealthy people. And I, I don't know. Again, like I, it makes me a little bit happier. Maybe maybe it's kind of good that we have this founding myth. Because if we all just sort of knew that this this was how it started, that everybody, you know, was out for their own interest and wealthy people had this massive amount of influence at the start and nobody was really that altruistic. It was just sort of modern populism to appease enough people but keep the power that they wanted. You know, it, it's, it's not about you, individual person. We think that this is going to be best for us influential powerful politician people maybe it's good maybe it's good we think they were better than they were because we we aspire to be them our versions of them versus these you know like greedy snobby people who had super blatant rules about money and power and they just accepted that that was the way that it was and even getting to the point where they could say Hey, if you are a person, you can vote for a senator. Took a hellish long time. Even like past racial lines, there was just economic lines where people were like, I don't want your stinky common vote. Like if, if we all sort of had that thought that, man, those are our founding fathers. Those are the people that started this country. We should aspire to be like them and have wealth and then push other people down with it. That would that might make us more harsh as opposed to how the system works now. But to correct one a couple things, one the United States back then was still the most liberal nation in the world most likely. Um it still had one of the most radically democratic systems in place compared to the rest of the world. So I understand kind of where you're coming from, but you also have to put it in the context of what else was out there at the time. So it's disappointing to learn some of this stuff, but it's, you know, you can also take a little bit of pride in the fact that the U.S. was different still. There, It was still doing new things, that, and it was still granting rights that had never before been granted. There's a reason why other revolutions and constitutions that come after 1776-1789 
follow the mold of the U.S. Constitution, and it's because it was the most forward progressive document at that time. Additionally, North Carolina, remember from the beginning I was talking about, it was considered a very backward state, and it wasn't just considered backwards because of its economic situation, but also because of its political situation. North Carolina was the most undemocratic state of the original 13 because of all of these limitations put into place. South Carolina and Virginia had far more democratic systems in place. You do have fights taking place um, in these other states also for voting rights, but they happen way, way earlier. So in North Carolina, this, this is a bit of an extraordinary situation because all the other states are democratic by this point in terms of allowing people to vote, not in terms of the party. Um, but North Carolina is still very undemocratic. And so this is kind of a fight to achieve what other states have already done by 1820. That, that does put it in perspective. I, I'm still upset about it. I'm not going to do any time traveling, but I appreciate the perspective. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, getting back to free suffrage here. 1852, it's still not implemented. 1854, it's still not implemented. I went over that Reed quote uh, where he's begging the General Assembly, please do something. But he does something in this address that it is basically kicking a hornet's nest. He is talking about different parts of the state that he thinks could use some work. He's outgoing now. He's been appointed to be a U.S. senator. Um, and so Thomas Bragg is actually going to become governor after uh, David Reed. But he's talking to the General Assembly and he says, an examination into the existing revenue laws will show that they operate unequally. Remember at the beginning when I'm talking about the tax exemption yep. on enslaved populations. David Reed is talking. Okay, about I imagine this. that's pretty racy for the time. I feel like that's that's just sort of like a known definition of evil in the present day. But so he he identifies two problems with the tax system in North Carolina. The first was in relation to public construction projects, where basically people who had very little money to offer and could not really afford to be the labor to build these roads are being forced to build roads that then the wealthy are taking advantage of these roads. And so he says, persons ought to contribute in proportion to the value of their estates in relation to infrastructure projects. But then he goes on and kind of contradicts himself. As a general rule, it is believed that the tax on the estate of each person should be in proportion to its value. However, the tax is subject to such exceptions as circumstances and fundamental principles may justify. Man, that is a sneaky way of saying, like, you know, wealthy people should not have to pay that much in taxes. So... It, it, it's it's a bit of a sneaky way, but he he's working with some very generous math. So enslaved populations in North Carolina at this time, they were taxed. They weren't taxed according to value, though. They were taxed 
a, uh, basically a capitation tax, a poll tax. So they were taxed per person as opposed to based on the value that they had been purchased at. It sounds absolutely disgusting today, but this is how they were doing it back then in 1854. So Reed is saying that an ad valorem tax, so a tax based on the property value, cannot be imposed on this that species of estate, that species of estate being an enslaved person. So Reed is saying wealthy people need to pay more of a fair share. However, this should not come from enslaved property. So he's he's trying to do a very weird balancing act here where he's trying to keep Eastern Democrats in his camp while also appealing to the West, saying, yes, I am aware that we have issues in the tax policy. We should fix it other ways. We should not be touching the tax on enslaved Ew. persons. So. I, yeah, I thought Reed was a good guy overall, but I he, he sounds just sort of uh, self-interested. I mean, he, he sounds like he, he you know caught lightning in a bottle with the free suffrage thing, and now is just sort of uh, you know playing politic. Yeah. So when I examined this, I kind of. I, I came up with two theories. One, he was doing the balancing act. He w- he genuinely wanted to make things better, but knew to make things better, he had to slowly approach it. So he has to keep democratic power by placating the East. He also has to continue getting the support of the West. Alternatively, he may have just been a demagogue. He may have just been saying whatever was popular to maintain power. At this point, he's becoming a U.S. senator, so it doesn't really matter anymore what he says on state issues, unless the Democrats lose power in the General Assembly, in which case he then no longer is a senator, because Whigs will vote one of their own in instead. So it's a little bit, you know, how cynical do you want to look at it? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that. And I feel like I've taken a really harsh view of every single person, you know, alive back then, but I, I don't know. I mean, he, he like at the time, if he had just come out and said, you know what, tax tax the wealthy slaveholding people a lot more. It, it's not like it, it was, you know, it's not like he's saying, hey, get rid of slavery. He's just saying, hey, the wealthy people who own people have to pay more money. Not really like getting rid of that. So, you know, like where is he morally where is he ethically it's it's really hard to say cuz i have absolutely no frame of reference for how these people made their decisions you know just thinking about like going into a convention and say like, oh what are we going to do today at the convention you know i imagine everybody's like you know got a cup of coffee or tea and they're like all talking together and they're like oh we're going to talk about like reducing the tax on slaves like, whoa, 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 I didn't know, like, Satan himself was at the, this convention, like, you know, punching in numbers and writing papers and, you know, being all bureaucratic and stuff. It it just seems like a like a blatantly, yeah, like a blatantly it's alien, it's terrible alien thing to be like, you know, those wealthy people who own other people with no possibility of them ever becoming free and they have all freedom stripped away. I think those poor individuals, those people have just, they've paid enough. They have suffered 
at the amount of money that they have had to pay from the labor that they get for free because they or they they purchased at a one-time rate and they take advantage of those people and they take their money we've taken too much of their money it's just it's being really sympathetic to people that i i cannot sympathize with wealthy super wealthy people hard to empathize with i'm I'm pro-capitalist absolutely but once you get to a certain level of wealth i i stop empathizing with you and then once you start owning slaves, you're just an awful, terrible person. So there was one caveat here. There was a way to increase this tax. Would you like to know more? I would. I would indeed. Okay. Buckle up. So the way to increase the tax on an ensla- on enslaved property, essentially, was to also increase the poll tax on those who held no enslaved property. So the only way to increase the tax on an enslaved on enslaved property was to increase the tax that people who own no slaves also paid. That sounds like a really sneaky thing that somebody who owns slaves put in there. Mm-hmm. Well, remember who controlled the convention to begin with? It was the East. Oh, man. Okay. So, so Reed kind of issues this warning. Hey, don't alter the tax on enslaved populations. Instead, we should raise other types of taxes to pay for these infrastructure projects for the West. He's playing the balancing act. And then he goes off to be a U.S. senator, and Thomas Bragg takes over. Free suffrage still is not enacted, though. That would come in 1857. It would take quite a while for free suffrage to happen. I want to ask something. That's in the back of my mind. And maybe you, listener, it's in the back of your mind as well. And I'm kind of generalizing this here. But it sounds like the tax that you brought up, the ad valorem tax, tax on the value of property in general, was principally opposed first because it would affect slaveholding people. And that topic has come up again recently where should there be what's called a wealth tax – for you know the general amount of value that your assets hold, should there be a tax on that? And it sounds like maybe the reason there hasn't been a tax on that, or we haven't given that a go, at least up until this time in 1800s, is because slaveholding people oppose it. Yeah, yeah. I've not studied the wealth tax issue enough that I can draw any sort of connection there. So that can be left up to the minds of everyone else listening. Nope. I'm going to edit you out, and I'm just going to pretend you agreed with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, find a random spot where I said, yeah. I just go with Perfect. That. And I just Perfect. gave it to you. You just gave it yeah. to me. Yeah. You say, you're so um, smart. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, taxes are always a messy issue. No one wants to pay taxes. And if you can write the laws you're like whatever i'm not gonna pay taxes everyone else can pay i mean that's the part i I simply that's the part i understand like i I don't want to give my money away i'd like it to be mine it it just it's in probably a lot of its retrospect we can see people in the past you know operating with the same type of incentives that we have today if i had the ability to control how much i paid i'd pay as as little amount as i could yeah, I mean, that's what's going on here. So this is that's kind of the stage now in 1854, is David Reed has left office. 
free suffrage is still not enacted. And all of a sudden, this little tax issue is starting to pop up. The West still hates the East, and the East still hates the West. The Whigs are starting to fall apart, and the Democrats, you know, they're still hanging out. The Western Democrats and Eastern Democrats, they're still pals. But the Whigs are falling apart at this point. And so that's kind of the stage now in 1854, and that's where we're going to leave off on this particular um, episode. So, you know, we I, I've hopefully set the stage a little bit for what's to come. Um, but one of the things I want to get into before we, before we uh, free everyone from this is the role of newspapers. I, I talked about a little bit earlier. They are kind of the political mouthpieces for parties. Um, and in North Carolina, uh, before... 1835, there were less than 30 newspapers in the state, and they were mostly focused out east. Um, that doesn't seem that, that you know, 30 seems okay, I, I get it, but that's a very low amount compared to some of these other states. Um, news traveled very slowly, it took forever to travel to begin with, you know, horse and buggy and all that fun stuff. Um, but when you did get news, it was old, and it was usually just reprinted from another newspaper. It wasn't written by your local guy. Most of the local writings are going to be advertisements, mail notifications. Hey, come pick up your mail at the mail office, Amos Alexander. It's been here for four weeks. Um, that actually is very common. If you look at early newspapers before 1835, you will see large sections devoted to you have letters in the post office, and you will see the same names every time. Um, Amos Alexander was a carpenter in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, for reference. Um, but the Telegraph in the 1830s, the Raleigh Register, and believe it or not, in Raleigh, actually, um, was the first paper in the state to get a telegraph line hooked up. So they were able to get news from Washington, D.C. exceptionally fast compared to other states or compared to other papers. So... You have very few papers, but the telegraph pops up, and suddenly news can travel a lot more quickly. So by 1850, you have at minimum 48 papers, and many of these papers are pop, uh, popping up in the West, where the population has uh, quickly increased. So paper editors start to become more important because they're starting to get news far more quickly, and as a result, can also add their commentary to the news that they're receiving. So the Raleigh Register, um, as we went over, was a Whig paper, so the editors espoused Whig talking points, while the Weekly Standard advocated Democratic talking points. However, they mostly talked about national political issues. They mostly parroted the ideology of the national political parties. 1848, though, David Reed pops up, the papers shift their focus and they start talking about um, state politics as opposed to national politics. And I kind of I view this as very important because it's political education. We talked earlier about the governor having to appeal to wide swaths of voters across the state. These papers are assisting in that education. You're getting slanted partisan coverage, but also geographic coverage based on your area. Remember, I talked earlier about the Greensboro Flag and Patriot splitting from the Raleigh Register over right. the free suffrage issue. The Greensboro Flag and Patriot represented the Western Whigs, while the Register 
represented the Eastern Whigs. So you get these editors who are starting to give political commentary that's more focused and local to your area, more important to you. And because of that, you you get an increase in your political exposure. You you understand more about what's happening in the state political system. And as a result, you start wanting to change things because you understand this doesn't seem right. So these things you've been talking about all this time, well, none of this seems right. Well, before this time, you probably wouldn't have really understood what was going on to begin with because no one was telling you. There was no political education going on if you didn't already have the money to be involved in politics. But now, because of the telegraph, because of this one little change in the Constitution that the governor runs for election as opposed to being appointed by the General Assembly, you're now being exposed to what's happening in Raleigh. You're being exposed to what's happening in the government. And as a result, you want things to change for the better for you. So all of these, you know, that that's all of these things you've been talking about. It's because you're educated on this political system. You understand how it works today. So you have a frame of reference. They didn't have a frame of reference until they started being politically educated. And so as a result, free suffrage was kind of the opening of a whole host of reform demands in North Carolina that would come about just before the Civil War. So that's just kind of what I wanted to end on with the role of newspapers, because they are just vitally important to what's to come. Right. And and that that makes a lot of sense that people prior to that time would have thought this is how it is. This is how it's been. This is how, you know, things are. But also they probably just wouldn't have thought about it at all. You know, they probably would have just... Yeah, that's a big part of it. Right. Right. Yeah. They They weren't stupid. They weren't dumb. Right. Right. It is so hard to like come at the past with all this knowledge, also knowledge of like how it turned out, how their actions were are like thought of now, and all our access to information. And then like, oh, why why aren't they like you know interested in their ability to to vote and and have rights? And like, why are they not upset about all those things? And you know, they were dealing with all different types of life events and. Nobody was talking about it, and you know maybe they just had other stuff going on. And then newspapers yeah, come around and they bring on. it to the you know public attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is important to also note that you went and picked up newspapers. Oftentimes, you were sharing newspapers with other people, and as a result, you were also talking about what was in these papers. So even if you were illiterate, the chances were that someone around you was literate <laughs> right. and would talk to you about it, would ask your opinion. So political commentary and political education spreads like this because people have more access to what's going on. So and and that's why I think you start seeing a lot more demands for reform at this time because it all it all really happens within about a um within within about a 12 to 14 year period or so. Again, I I can see that the force is there. I think that like it makes more sense when you sort of explain it like that. I feel like I want to have some little quip or zinger for like uh you know, some illiterate person with the news having very strong opinions on the news, but I don't have one. And I'll, I'll, I'll go easy on the people from the past. They, they had other things going on.
could just go on a Facebook comment section of any news article and find illiterate people. <laughs> if All you right, won't do it, go. I'll do That's it. it. <laughs> hey, Bradley, question for you. Should everyone share this podcast? Yeah. Should everyone subscribe to this podcast? Yeah. Is it true Tuesday nights you put on a tri-cornered hat, wooden shoes, a petticoat, and nothing else, and recite the Constitution of the United States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should everyone have a great day? Yeah.